In 64 AD, there was a fire and it destroyed most of the districts in the city of Rome. There was an emperor at the time, his name was Nero, and many believe in in history and many believed at the time that Nero, this emperor, was responsible for the fire. And so Nero came up with this plan and the plan was to look at this new group, this sect called Christians, and to point his finger at them and say, they did it, they did it. And you can imagine what happened Nero blamed the Christians, kind of threw that in the midst of all that, and maybe uh, as part of that, he began to hate Christians himself. And I've talked about in sermons before how he famously persecuted them by, by dressing up in animal clothing and claws and, and mauling Christians in his gardens, and, and how he famously persecuted Christians by lighting them on fire alive uh, so that they could light his gardens as well. Uh, but also, a part that I don't think I've ever told you before about Neronian persecution is that because he pointed the finger at them as the responsible party behind this giant fire, people all over Rome started to hate them. I mean, they're looking at Christians, brand new, not that many Christians. It's not like today where you have more than a billion Christians, people that would label and identify themselves as a Christian. I mean, this is is not a very large amount of people. And so now people are looking at them and going, you are the one, you are the people, you are the group responsible for my house burning down, for my shop burning down. The days before insurance existed, you are responsible for the fact that me and my family are now living on the streets. This is your fault. And so not only did Nero begin to persecute and hate, Christians, but the people as a whole, society, turned against Christians. Not long after Nero, there was another emperor named Domitian, who's not as famous in history for some reason, even in Christian history, but but Domitian was perhaps a greater killer of Christians than Nero was. Bible.org says this uh, about his time in in an individual martyr. Among the numerous martyrs that suffered during this persecution was Simeon, bishop of Jerusalem, who was crucified, and Saint John, who was boiled in oil and afterwards banished to Patmos. That no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment was without renouncing his religion. Domitian also made up lies about Christians, blaming them for natural disasters in Rome. I don't know how you get away with that, but when you're emperor and you're you're godlike figure, every time you have an earthquake, and he literally did this, like it's the Christians' fault that we had this earthquake. I'm sure it went something like this. If they would just worship our gods, then our gods wouldn't send those natural disasters. And so Domitian is, is boiling people alive. He's turning culture against Christians even more. Polycarp in 155, who lived or died between 155 AD and 162 AD, was burned at the stake alive for refusing to burn incense to the emperor. And about a week and a half ago, 80 Christians' homes in Egypt were burned to the ground simply because they were Christians. And here's what I want you to know. This is why I've chosen to start this way Uh, The story of Christianity has in some ways always been a story of fire. In fact, William J. Bennett wrote a book about the first thousand years of Christians, and I think he appropriately titled it, Tried by Fire. 
if you're a Christian, then you're included in this we. We have always, always, since the beginning of our faith, been crucified. Yet this weird thing has happened in our own country. We now, because we are moving away from being, you know, an almost complete majority towards being a minority perhaps in this country, and because the culture has shifted away from what we deem a good, godly, biblical morality, and because people don't look at each other anymore and say, wow, it's great that you're a Christian, they say, oh, you're one of those, we act, you act probably, like something shocking has taken place. Don't you, haven't you had this conversation where you're like, I can't believe how Christians are now being treated. I can't believe that the Christian moral fabric of our country is is deteriorating. I can't believe that it's no longer seen as a positive to be a Christian. I can't believe that it's no longer, you know, seen as a positive to go to church. I just, I'm shocked. This is our attitude. But yet the religion of Christianity has always been a religion of fire. And so here's, here's kind of the, the thing behind this sermon today. We live, we know this, I don't think it's deniable anymore, in the midst of a culture that is slowly perhaps, but moving away towards being Christian, whatever that means. I don't believe that there's such thing as a Christian nation. But I do believe that a nation can be full of Christians and a nation can be uh, influenced heavily by those Christian people. And we see as we look around that those things aren't happening like they used to in the United States of America. And what happens, what's happening, I see this all around me, is that individual Christians' lives are becoming uglier because they are so surprised that we are not treated like we used to be treated. You, you've seen this, right? I mean, people who are in countries where Christians have been forever, I'll use that in a uh, general sense, a, a metaphorical sense, uh, forever been persecuted, They just go on their lives going, well, this is the way it is. Of course our government is against us. Of course people don't like that we're Christians. But in America, because we've been so shocked by how quickly culture is turning against us, our lives become uglier. We're talking about living a beautiful life, and one of the things that I think is preventing you and many Christians from living a beautiful life is that we're looking at culture and going, I can't believe this has happened. And we are, sociologists will say this, people who study the Christian faith in America will say this, we are fighting to try to retain what we have always had. And in our efforts to fight to retain what we have always had, we sometimes become as ugly as the culture around us that we are fighting against. Well, you're going to call me a name, I'll call you a name. Well, you're going to be a jerk, I'm going to be a jerk. You're going to shoot one of our people, and this is, you know, pretty far out there people, but I'm going to shoot back heard somebody say not long ago that represents a a very major Christian college, we're all going to carry guns so that when those Muslims come in here, we can shoot them back. 
ugly. That's ugly, right? We all agree political standards or statements aside that that is an ugly, ugly thing to say. It's not a Christian thing, I can tell you that. And it's happening because evangelical Christians are going, what happened? Our culture has turned against us. And Peter gives us incredible advice. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, Peter just speaks right into the heart of what Christians, I think, are facing in America. It's not why he originally wrote it. He wrote it because the people he's writing to are going to face something like us, but worse. And here's how he begins. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, <laughs> as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. That word surprised translates a Greek word that means think it strange. Now, that's just, it's like comparing apples and oranges, but they were literally going to be burned. We don't like how elections go. But Peter looks at them and goes, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. And now that you have the backstory, that's not like the bad things that will happen. Don't be surprised that people want to burn you alive. And I think that maybe the biggest thing that we can hear in this whole passage today is don't be surprised. Our culture has shifted away from what it once was. Christians are not thought of, especially out here in the Northwest, like they used to be. Christianity is not the only accepted religion, and we shouldn't be surprised because Christianity has always been a religion of fire. If you look at the Bible, you'll see that these things were predicted very early on Jesus says, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus said it. He's our master. He's our Lord. He's the one we follow. If they persecuted him, then they will also persecute us. In 1 Timothy, it says that every person, every single person who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And yet we go, what? How could you possibly make fun of Christians? How could you possibly not have our moral stance? How could you possibly not vote like we want you to? How could you possibly think that there's something negative about us? Don't be surprised. We could just leave it there. Do not be surprised at what has taken place in our culture because it has taken place in every culture since Christianity has existed. But instead of surprise, he says that other thing that's harder. He says, don't be surprised as though something strange was happening to you because it's not strange. It's normal. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. 
The first word there for joy, it translates a word that means to rejoice or be delighted or pleased or, or glad. And he says to do this because of what will happen when Christ returns. We believe as Christians that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven. And someday he's coming back to take us into heaven and to punish people who have not accepted him as their savior. That's what we believe. And Peter says, rejoice now when you face trials because of the joy you will have when Jesus returns. That second word is so cool. I love it. It's a word that translates something like overjoyed, but it means like so joyful we jump or we sing or we shout. And the idea is simply this. Rejoice in the trials that you face for Jesus because you know that someday you will jump for joy when Jesus comes back. And there even seems to be a cool connection because it says inasmuch, and the idea there is to the degree that you suffer now, you will jump for joy later. Now, it's not something we like, but it's something that I think is valuable. We live here in America. People kind of make fun of us. 80 Christians had their house burned to the ground a couple of weeks ago. What Peter seems to be saying is that someday when they get to heaven, there's just gonna be a little better party for them. It's not that it won't be perfect for those of us who are here in the United States. It's just that they will receive some type of other benefit when they get into their eternal state. And so when you have an opportunity to suffer for Jesus and with Jesus, you have an opportunity to expand your heavenly joy. The problem, the problem for most American Christians is that they have been taught through churches and I don't know, through Bible studies, through pastors, uh, some of whom are very famous, that it's all about what happens in this life. And so when fiery trials come, it's like we have to butt up against this, we have to fight back, we have to fix now, because we've made Christianity a religion of now. We have said that you can have your best life now. We have said that if you just give enough money to church, then you will get a lot more money back and you can live in a mansion. And if you don't live in a mansion, then you're probably doing something wrong in your Christian faith. But the Bible says don't be surprised when fiery trials come, but rejoice because that, that trial is producing a greater joy for you in eternity. You will never be happy as a Christian. You will never live a beautiful life. You won't if you are not an eternally thinking person. You must look at the trials that you face now as producing something in eternity, and then you can rejoice despite the trials that you are facing now. In James 1, 2 through 5, he kind of famously says something very similar. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Earlier in the book of 1 Peter, we saw that no trial that we go through is without the knowledge of God. God will not let us go through anything that he doesn't want us to go through. And I said, we may not know why. We may never, even though we like to tell each other this, go, hey, oh yeah, I get it now in this life. 
but we can trust that anything that we deal with, God has allowed us to deal with, and it's a God who loves us, loves us in fact so much that he came to earth to die for us. But one of the things that we can see here is that while we may never know why in this life God allowed for us to suffer, we can know that if we suffer with Jesus, for Jesus, then in eternity, it's going to produce something good for us. And so now in this moment when we are suffering, when culture is shifting against us, when we are made fun of for Jesus, when people defriend us for being Christians, we know that we can rejoice because this will allow us to jump for joy someday when Jesus returns. Isn't that more beautiful than saying we'll shoot him back? To go, you shoot at me because I'm a Christian? You burn my house down because I'm a Christian? Well, now I can celebrate more because I know that you have produced something for me in eternity. That's more beautiful. But it doesn't happen if you think only in terms of what your life is like on this earth. You must think in terms of what eternity holds for you. And he gets to one that's specific here, and it's a specific one for us. It's something that we now know more than we have ever known in our country. He says in 1 Peter 4, 14 through 15, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should be not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. He says, hey, if you're insulted for Jesus, then know this, you're blessed. It's a word that I give to you just about every week, makarios. In fact, I saw a tweet the other day, it was funny, uh, and it said, Makarios, uh, on Twitter, that's where a tweet goes for those of you that uh, are older. Um, Makarios, and then a dash, and then it said, theologians, you know what I'm talking about, with like a winky face, and I did, and it was funny. It wasn't funny to you guys, I can tell, but it was funny to me uh, because I love this word so much. Makarios, and if you've been around, you know this because this is, this is what makes being a Christian now so incredible. It's a Greek word that, that translated uh, something that, that Roman and Greek people would use for the happiness of the gods. And the gods were seen, gods we don't believe in, but the gods were seen as having uh, an unlimited ability to use their resources and an unlimited amount of resources. And I gave the, the example just a couple of weeks ago of, of eating chocolate cake. As, as human beings, we can be satisfied by our chocolate cake, but eventually we can't eat anymore. And there is a uh, return on that benefit and it starts to be a negative return at some point and then we get sick. Uh, but the gods could eat as much chocolate cake as they wanted because they had an endless ability to eat. And so we see this satisfaction. It's a word that means internal satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances. And so Peter here looks at us and goes, when people insult you for being a Christian because of Jesus, then you know that you are blessed. Because being a Christian is the way that you have internal satisfaction that is not, waste, that is not uh, dependent on external circumstances. Isn't that cool? Because we hate to be made fun of, don't we? Isn't one of the reasons that maybe you don't want to tell people you're a Christian because you don't want them to say mean things about you? It's just easier not to. But as Christians, we have this internal satisfaction that is not based on what people say about us or even think about us. 
And so when they insult us, it is a reminder. This is the cool part. It's a reminder of how blessed we are to be in Jesus. Somebody comes up to you and they say, you're really a Christian? How could you possibly think like that? Do you hate science? Are you stupid? Do you not have any logic in your brain? Are you not all about love like the rest of us? You know, I mean, how dare you? You just want all people to have guns so you can kill people. I mean, when these things come at you, just remember, if you're suffering for Christ, then it's a reminder that you're blessed. And it's a reminder of that in part because of what Peter says there, that you know that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You're not going to be made fun of for being a Christian and take it with a level of joy if the Holy Spirit is not moving in your life. And so when people mock us for being Christians, it ought to point to the fact that we are Christians and as Christians, we have internal satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances because the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. It rests upon us. (coughs) But if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief. Not many of you have those problems. Or, or, even as a meddler. A meddler is a term for someone who meddles in things that are uh, not their own. It is another word for an agitator or a troublemaker. John MacArthur says this of the word, Christians are never to be troublemakers or igniters in society or in their workplaces. Now let me say up front that I believe we should stand for things. I think that we should speak up as God wants us to. But what I think Peter is getting at, and I think what John MacArthur means, is what 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. <clears throat> Here's what we do. We get on our Facebook pages, we go up to people, and we pick a fight, and then we run back to our churches and say, well, they persecuted me. We come out with our political stances and we say, you all need to think like us, you idiots. And then they say, you're an idiot. And we go, oh, persecution. I cannot believe what has happened in this country. And Peter says, you're gonna suffer for being a Christian. Don't be surprised about it. Rejoice because of it. But don't suffer for being a troublemaker or a murderer or a thief. That might apply to hopefully none of you, but don't suffer for being a troublemaker. And I look around, oh man, I look around. And there are a lot of people who in the name of Jesus are just causing a lot of problems. They're causing a lot of trouble. I'm not saying don't take a stand. I'm not even saying don't speak up for things that are important, but don't pick fights. Make it your goal to lead a quiet life. A life that can be humbly respected by the people around you. Now, this is where we really see it, right? Because we've lost our culture, if you will. Uh, I'm not sure that's true, but that's the idea. We've lost our culture, and so we need to fight to get it back. And so we run around saying the same mean things as everybody else, fighting in the same way that culture fights, disagreeing with people in the same way that that non-Christians disagree with us. We use the same tactics to fight our battles, And Peter says, that is not becoming of a Christian. And if you suffer for doing that, then you're suffering incorrectly. I wish that every Christian 
the United States of America, especially the ones who get on TV, and a lot of them in the South, could just read that verse. It's like it's not in there because we run around causing fights and saying, I can't believe they'd fight back. Peter says, you'll suffer. Don't be surprised. Instead, rejoice, but don't suffer for being a troublemaker. And he continues. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly sinner? God's household equals the church, not a church, the church, all people who are Christians, real Christians that exist on the earth. And Peter says, judgment begins with God's household. Now, there's a couple of things at play in these two verses. And the first is this, that we who are Christians, and we forget this, will be judged. We said this just a couple of weeks ago, but it's an important thing to remember. We will not be judged for salvation or not salvation if we have placed our faith in Jesus, if we have given Jesus our lives, declared him Lord and Savior, we'll go to heaven. But we will have a sit-down conversation with God about the things that we have done in our lives. I think of it in terms of my relationship with my dad when I was a kid, and my dad, I never had a sit-down conversation with him to determine whether or not I was going to still be in his family. I never had a sit-down conversation with him about whether he was going to abandon me. I never had a sit-down conversation with him about whether he was going to choose to love me. But we had some sit-down conversations about why I didn't turn in homework. And we had some sit-down conversations about a rap CD. That was a one-time deal. I never listened to that rap CD again. He probably doesn't remember it, but his vein was like, like I said. And I've told you this, but I think that when we sit with Jesus, we'll have to talk about these things that we have done against him that were wrong, that were immoral, sinful. And Jesus will get to the end and say, well, I died for that and he'll let us into heaven. But we must remember when we think about our lives and the way we're interacting with those who are rejecting and mocking and persecuting us that we still will have to answer for how we respond. I don't think that it's ever been a good excuse for any kid or for us when we sit in front of Jesus to say they started it. But that's the mentality of Christians in the United States today. Well, they started it. If they would just think like me and believe like me and be like me, then everything would be fine. I'd be nice to them. I don't think that'll go. Now, the other part of this, though, is a reminder that we who are Christians will get into heaven while other people won't. You see, you go, as culture shifts, it's hard to be a Christian, so he says. It's hard to be a Christian. It didn't used to be hard to be a Christian. When I was born through my childhood age, there was no, uh, no problem with just publicly going, yeah, I'm a Christian. In fact, you were saluted for that. In the South today, you go there and there's a different culture. My cousin who lives in Oklahoma described it this way. She said, if you go to church in the Northwest, you lie about it. And if you don't go to church in the South, you lie about it. 
And up here in the Northwest, there is a, you'd rather say to somebody at 12.30 on Sunday afternoon, yeah, I saw the football game, then I went to church. It's becoming harder to be a Christian, and Peter says it's hard to be a Christian. You might die for your faith. I think about my baby who's right over there, and I think by the time she's my age, it will be harder to be a Christian. And in my head, I have a goal, and the goal is that she will be a person who will burn before she will deny Jesus with her lips or with her life. That's a hard goal for a dad because I just want her to be safe, but it's still the goal nonetheless because of what Peter says. It's hard to be a Christian because you might suffer, you might be mocked, you might burn, but it's harder to not be a Christian because in eternity you will be punished. One of the ways we live a beautiful life or decide to live a beautiful life is that we look at our lives and go, it might be hard to live beautifully now to respond to jerks in a positive, nice, loving way, but it's much harder to suffer in eternity in hell. And so I choose to be a Christian anyway. I think there's a lot of people in our country right now who have a mental belief that Jesus really is the savior of the world, but they don't become Christians because they think that's hard. I don't wanna get up for church. I don't wanna have these other moral stances. I don't wanna not be able to uh, give in to things that make me feel good. I just wanna live my life. And, and they're right. It's a lie to say become a Christian everything is easier. That's a lie. I think a lot of non-Christians are smarter about what it means to be a Christian than Christians. I, I just want you to know you should become a Christian not because anything will get easier, but because eternity will be easier. And that's what Peter is saying. You choose to live beautifully Because you know when persecution comes that it produces a greater joy in heaven. It's a reminder that you have internal satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances. And it's easier to be a Christian in eternity, although it's hard right now. It is better to be a Christian now and suffer than to suffer eternity in eternity for not being a Christian. And then Peter gives us the answer. And man, we don't like this. We don't like this at all. But this is what God has told us through Peter in verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Who have you entrusted yourself to? The term is a banker's term. It's the idea of giving your money to the bank and you trusting the bank with your money. And most of us do that without a a second thought. And Peter says, entrust yourself to God, your faithful creator. And I'm telling you, this this is it. This is just, you need to hear this. If you're going to live a beautiful life, then it will mean that you entrust yourself to your creator and not anything else. Uh, You must trust that you will have a shout out loud joy when you get to heaven. You must trust that you can have internal satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances. You must trust uh, that you will be in heaven someday and it's better to suffer now as a Christian than suffer in eternity in hell. You must trust him to be faithful to his promises 
If you're going to live beautifully, then you must entrust yourself to your faithful creator. But most Christians in the United States entrust themselves to something else. They entrust themselves to their money, and so when the economy goes bad, they're all kinds of mad about it. They entrust themselves to a political leader, and they're all freaked out about what's going to happen in November. They entrust themselves to a family member and say, well, as long as that person likes me, maybe it's their husband or spouse, maybe it's somebody else, as long as they like me, then life will be okay. And Peter says, if you want to live beautifully, then you must entrust yourself to God, continuing to serve him and do what's right, no matter what it costs you now. I would just ask you, you can think about it, but who have you entrusted yourself to? We know that a life entrusted to God, a life that continues to do good and focuses on, as Peter said uh, back a couple of verses, a life that is focused on doing good and glorifying God while entrusting yourself, themselves to God is a beautiful life. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, you have maybe heard of her if you've grown up in the church and you've probably heard of her, was a Christian author and speaker Uh, I'll just read from Wikipedia. Her husband, Jim Elliott, was killed in 1956 while attempting to make missionary contact with the Aka of Eastern Ecuador. Now notice this next sentence. This is just right there on Wikipedia like it's nothing, but notice it. She later spent two years as a missionary to the tribe members who killed her husband. That's beautiful. And it didn't happen because she thought, well, those Akas won't kill anybody else. She knew what was right. She knew what would glorify God. And so she chose to entrust herself, to commit herself to God and continue to do right. As our culture shifts away from Christianity, you have a choice. Will you entrust yourself to God knowing that he will take you to heaven someday, knowing that you are blessed, knowing that you will rejoice more later than you would have if you weren't suffering for Jesus Or will you keep trying to entrust yourself to something else? Well, if I'm just nice enough, they won't make fun of me. If we just vote right, then then culture will go our way. If I just pick the right friends, I'll be okay. If I just make enough money. If you want to live beautifully, you must entrust yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good with the goal of glorifying him. Our culture is shifting away from us. It might get worse. It might get worse. Don't be surprised. Rejoice. Remember that you're blessed. Be okay with it being hard because you know that it'll be easy in heaven and entrust yourself to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that this sermon wouldn't fall on deaf ears. Thank you that you led it to us on 4th of July weekend because tomorrow will be a symbol all around this country that uh, for hundreds of years, many of us who are Americans have entrusted ourselves to a country. (laughs) But we need to entrust ourselves to you. And so I pray, God, that we who are Christians, 
would faithfully serve you doing what is right and focusing on your exaltation, your glory, no matter what we deal with, God. I pray that we who are Christians would not be surprised at the fiery trials, but we would rejoice. I pray, God, that we who are Christians would, would remember that we are blessed. I pray that we who are Christians would be willing to, de- willing to deal with the hard stuff knowing that eternity in heaven will not be hard. And I pray, God, for those who are here with us today who will listen online that are not Christians. And I pray, God, please, God, bring them to salvation because they are trusting in things currently that will not prove trustworthy. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall upon all who do not know you, God, and I pray that you would bring them to you, Lord. God, I thank you for being so faithful to us, and I pray these things in your name. Amen.